Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld, where we continue our series, The Mysteries of the Kingdom, today with a message entitled, The Grace of Seeing. So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 to 17, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Christians have long struggled with the sovereignty of God. At times, the doctrine seems overly sweet. A baby is born, a loved one comes to Christ, our prayers are answered, we are delivered from a very difficult matter. How good to know that God is in control. But at other times, we thrash about. You know, something devastating happens in our lives, and was God sovereign over that as well? I think of Job in the days of his trouble. He lost his wealth, and his children had died, and Job 2.10 records him saying, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And he thought this was from God. Or listen to the words of God in Isaiah 45, verse 7. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. The Bible is clear about God's role in all things. But many Christians have struggled about God's role when it comes to our own salvation. See, when it comes to our own salvation, who is sovereign, God or us? Jonathan Edwards once said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. But I can almost hear the objection. I did in some fashion contribute to my salvation. I, I made a choice. I contributed my choice. And with that statement, although we almost never say it, but we do imply it, that some of the glory for my salvation is in my free choice. I chose Christ. I contributed more than my sin. But in response, we hear Paul's words in Romans 9, 15 to 16. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, so that it does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. See, does that passage of Scripture trouble you? Well, Jesus is going to speak to that in the passage we're studying today. We've come to Matthew 13, which is a chapter, it's filled with seven parables, and in the middle of this text about parables is one extended discussion about why Jesus speaks in parables in the first place. See, up till now, as we've studied the book of Matthew, there has been very little in the way of parables, actually only one, but all of a sudden we find Jesus speaking to the crowds in one parable after another. It's like a major shift in his ministry. So what gives? Well, part of the answer to this is the opposition to Jesus that has been growing. The Pharisees are saying that he's in league with Satan, and the crowds are just a little less enthusiastic about him than they used to be. They listen but aren't sure. The mood toward him will soon sour, and Jesus, knowing this, is more guarded in what he says. And yet the disciples want to know. They ask something like this. Why is it when you preach the Sermon on the Mount, You were so remarkably plain, and now you seem so deliberately vague. Why? What's going on? So let's read Jesus' answer. I'm reading Matthew 13, verses 10 to 17. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance." But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. 
Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. You know, at first glance, Jesus answers to the disciples' questions about why he speaks in parables, what sounds shocking. I mean, most of us have thought of parables kind of like we think about a good sermon illustration. Helps us understand a spiritual truth better. It helps us apply spiritual truth better. I mean, parables, at least so we tell ourselves, are supposed to reveal things that are hard to understand. But here Jesus is saying exactly the opposite. He's speaking in parables to hide spiritual truth from certain people, not to reveal it. They will become quite comfortable with what Jesus is saying, but they won't understand, and consequently, they won't be saved. So was Jesus being deliberately vague so that, according to verse 15, he would not have to turn and heal and forgive them. That's to say, has he made up his mind to deliberately confuse the crowd so that he might withhold forgiveness of sins and salvation from them? Because that's what he seems to be saying. And, and if that's what he is saying, well it's, well, it's truly shocking. That would be like predestination to hell. So I suppose we're going to have to carefully examine everything he says, and in the end, we might notice why it is that some people welcome Jesus and some do not. But let's start again at verse 10. Then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? So the disciples now have Jesus alone and they want to know from him why he is being vague and deliberately hard to understand. Now, as we've noted through our study of Matthew, Matthew doesn't always present his material to us in a chronological order. I mean, this meeting with the disciples probably happened after he had told the parables recorded in this chapter. Matthew in Wisdom presents the explanation here in between the first and second parable, probably for a very good reason. Matthew wants us, the readers of his book, to think about the parable of the sower. Remember, as we saw it yesterday, the point is that the response to Jesus' message varies greatly. Some hear him and are transformed, and others are not. And some who hear him are ready to abandon everything to follow him as, as if they get it. And some are confused and some are unwilling to pay the cost of discipleship. And, and some are, are still in love with this present age and in love with money. See, this is a mixed crowd. Their motivation for coming to see Jesus is all over the map. Some believe he has the words of eternal life and, and some just want to be healed. And that's the nature of the parable he is told. The message has gone out, but the response to the message varies greatly. And as we, the readers of Matthew, know, this kind of a crowd will not love him. They will turn against him in the end. So knowing this, Jesus is being deliberately vague to this crowd. And that's the reason for the parables. He's hiding the truth from them. Now to verse 11. And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. I think the key word in this verse is the word given. See, when something is given to us, it speaks of the gift that we didn't earn or deserve. I mean, the biblical word for that is grace. 
I mean, think about, I mean, later in Matthew, when Jesus is telling another parable. Matthew 25, verse 15 says, to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. And the general idea here is simple. How much each person receives is based upon the choice of the giver, not on the will of the one receiving. The giver decides who gets and how much they get. So if it's Christmas and your parents send you a $50 or a $5,000 check, the size of the gift and the fact of the gift depends on the choice of the giver. And that, by the way, is the difference between a gift and a wage. A wage is earned. A gift is given. It's very different. How we struggle with this. And that's because on the one hand, when Jesus claims to reveal the great secrets of the kingdom to some and not to others, it's very tempting then to say, well, then how can God hold anyone accountable for anything? I mean, after all, he simply reveals to some and not to others. He has mercy on some and and not to others, and he gives to some and, and not to others. So it depends then on the will of the person who gives. It has nothing to do with the receiver. Well, is that true? Well, let's just hold that question for now, and and I promise you to get back to it. See, I say that because this is one of the principal reasons that many of us have for not freely saying that salvation is entirely of God. See, if it's true, we say, then then God must be capricious, and, and we must be puppets. Yes, I'll answer that question, so hold that question. I will at least give a partial answer to that, and it is important. But for now, we simply notice that the gift of the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom are shared openly with the disciples, but that Jesus has deliberately withheld these secrets from the crowds. They remain, according to Jesus' will, unable to see. But Jesus is saying, I am teaching in such a way as to hide the truth from those whose motives for coming after me are not good. Now to Matthew 13, verse 12. For the one who has, more will be given. He will have an abundance. But the one who has not, even what he has, will be taken away. Again, this seems surprising. It sounds like the spiritually rich are getting richer and the spiritually poor are getting poorer. And again, it just sounds so unfair. Clearly, we need some insight so that we can examine Jesus' words. What headlines are capturing your attention? The stock market, international unrest, politics, violence. Is the world out of control? I want to encourage you. What may appear hopeless is completely within the governing hand of God. What seems mysterious, unwieldy, God's people place confidence in the creator, sustainer, and governor of all things. And that's the point of Dr. Neufeld's new series, The Mysteries of the Kingdom, a study of Matthew 11 to 13. Dr. Neufeld wrote, listen, Christian, your Savior is not just a personal Savior. He is Lord of heaven and earth, and no opposition raised up against him will stand. Such is the power and authority of your Lord. Don't ever forget that. Join us all month for the Mysteries of the Kingdom right here on Back to the Bible Canada. And please consider offering your support for this daily Bible teaching program by calling 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. If we think about it, Jesus' words might be a little less surprising than we had originally imagined. For instance, 
Is this not a basic principle of life? To him who has, more will be given. To him who has not, even what he has will be taken away. See, if, for example, you've started to learn to play, let's say, the piano, and you carry on, more is given. If you slack off, even quit, all the things that you once obtained are taken away. See, that happened to me in terms of my Hebrew studies in seminary. You know, in very short order, I was reading my Hebrew Bible, but over the years, I haven't kept it up. And so much of what I once had is now taken away. See, that's a principle about so many things. You either go forward or you begin to forget what you've learned. I mean, that's a principle of life. And in that sense, it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus said that it was so of the spiritual life as well. If you only have a little of it and you don't progress, you're going to lose what you had. Or more plainly, if Jesus' listeners won't go all the way and surrender to their king, then they will lose what little understanding they once had. And it's the same way with you as well. If you're only an occasional Christian, I mean, one day, even the little that you had is going to be taken from you. Now to verse 13. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. In other words, Jesus says, the crowds are listening to me constantly, and they seem to be paying attention, but they remain in darkness. And because they don't understand, Jesus will speak to them in parables, which will further confuse them. And eventually, whatever they had will be lost. Well, let's lean into that for a bit and see what we might learn from this. There are two very important lessons for everyone listening. For spiritual insight, as we've seen, is the result of God's grace. If you learn nothing else from this message, that's it. Of course, that was true for Matthew. I mean, he was sitting at a tax collector's booth and may have been there forever, except that Jesus came to his tax booth and said, follow me. And you find that described in in Matthew 9, verse 9. But notice Matthew responded. I mean, he did make a choice. He rose from the booth, and that choice, however, came through grace. And notice also that not everyone had such grace. I mean to say Jesus didn't stop at every single tax booth in Israel and make the same offer. Matthew was singled out for a moment of grace, and that's just undeniable. Now, the same thing was true for the other disciples of Jesus. Matthew 4.19 says Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, and he approached two fishermen, Peter and his brother Andrew, and he simply said, follow me. Same picture, played out again. I suppose I want to communicate two important truths. The first is that we we are being insincere when we say that everyone has the same chance or the same choice to make. Look, that's just not true. I mean, compare the person who grows up in a Christian home and the person who's never heard the gospel in their lives. The contrast between those two is remarkable. And second, I think because of this, Christians are compelled to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, regardless of the cost. Love compels us to do this. But but get back to the thought that if you're in Christ, the reason for your salvation is entirely due to grace. And nothing else, I mean, nothing else explains it. Not your good sense, not your keen spiritual insight. No, no. Jesus said, if To you it has been given to understand, and further, if you see, it's because your eyes are blessed, he says. And here's a troubling thought. Is any of that fair? If Jesus simply didn't give the same secret of the kingdom to others, I mean, what of that? And that leads us to the other side of the equation. What about human freedom? Is Jesus saying there is none? Well, look again at verses 14 and 15. 
Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive, for this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they would see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts in turn, and I would heal them. Now, Jesus is here quoting a section from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10. It's a famous chapter in Isaiah because it contains Isaiah's call to ministry. God is calling him to be a prophet. Isaiah records that this happened in the year that King Uzziah died, which would have been around the year 740 B.C. Uzziah had contracted leprosy for despising God's holiness, and and that was a difficult year for Uzziah's death marked the end of a long period of prosperity in Judah, and Isaiah was but a young man. And he was in the temple, and a vision appeared to him. The Lord was seated on his throne, and seraphim were flying through the temple, and they were crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And the temple was filling with smoke, and the entire structure began to shake. And Isaiah knew that that God had appeared to him, and in terror he cries out that, that he's a man of unclean lips. And then God cleanses his lips and forgives his sin. And he hears God say, whom shall I send on mission and who will go for us? And Isaiah, badly shaken, steps forward and tells God he will do whatever he calls him to do. And with that comes Isaiah's calling. He is to go and be a preacher in Judah. But that's only half of the call. He's to preach until the people become so sick of him, until no one listens to him at all. And in the end, their unresponsiveness to him will justify their punishment, which will include the Babylonian captivity. Now, Jesus is saying that's exactly what's going on in his day as well. As he preaches, people are beginning to turn against him. But this, just like in Isaiah's day, is intended to reveal what was genuinely in their heart in the first place. So I want you to notice in verse 15, there's an interplay between God's choice and our choice. Notice first that the heart grows dull. So what does that mean? And the saying sounds strange to us, but let's replace this saying with with one that we might understand. Let's say we're talking about someone whose intellect was becoming dull. Well, that might be due to a disease like, like Alzheimer's or some form of dementia, but it doesn't have to be that. I mean, imagine a person just becomes lazy and they stop reading and they stop growing and they stop learning and they become disinterested in new information. And the old adage that if you don't use it, you lose it, well, it will become true for them. So using that analogy, the same is true of our heart. The heart was created to respond to God, but let's say it takes no interest whatsoever. Well, soon it becomes dull and it's unable to respond. So why is that? Well, the answer is we're fully responsible for the choices that we make. So now notice, secondly, these people can barely hear with their ears. The word barely is a very difficult one to translate because, well, it's an idiom. It can mean to be slow or it can mean to be heavy. The idea is to have heavy ears. So imagine a runner training in the Olympics. And somewhere along the difficult path of training, this athlete becomes complacent and doesn't want to run anymore. So he stops training. He gets heavy. And that's what happened to the ears that Jesus spoke to. They weren't listening with care, and they weren't listening to believe and obey. Instead, they got lazy. And then notice, thirdly, that they've closed their eyes. Why didn't they see? Well, because they chose not to see. It wasn't God who closed their eyes or ears or heart. They did it willingly. It was their choice. 
So if it's true that all spiritual insight, including our own salvation, is the result of grace and grace alone, well, listen now. It's also true that spiritual blindness is the result of a choice, not God's choice. No, no, it's the result of our choice. So did you notice these two things? If we're blind, it's because we've chosen to be blind. And if we see, it's because God has chosen to open our eyes. No one was ever manipulated by God to reject him and then suffer the consequences for that. I think we can honestly say, if we refuse grace, it's because we've willingly chosen to refuse grace. But if we embrace grace, it's because God has opened our eyes. And from this, we understand our own conversion. God, up to the moment of our conversion, respected our free choice. You've freely chosen to rebel. You seek your own way. You've closed your eyes to the truths he has. Your spiritual blindness is your choice to close your eyes. That's even true of those who have never heard. Romans 1 says that nature itself teaches us we owe to God both repentance and thankfulness. But we choose freely to ignore this magnificent body of evidence. And then one day, in the case of the redeemed, God said, I'm not going to respect your choice anymore. And then he speaks to our dull hearts and our deaf ears and our blind eyes, and our heart responds to him. No one ever went to hell because God predestined them to go there. No, no, everyone went there because it was their free choice to go. On the other hand, it is because God had mercy on us that anyone was ever saved. That's what Christ is teaching here. John, there's no question this is a difficult subject and uh, has caused a lot of difficulty over history. But right now what we're asking is, or what is it you're saying? Are you saying that there are no choices to be made? Yeah, I'm, I'm not saying that at all, Ben. I'm saying that we are, we are called upon to choose all the time. I think about Moses' words to Israel, choose you this day whom you will serve. And everyone, I mean, that's the call of salvation. You must choose for Christ. That's God's call on your life. So I, I'm going to say that very clearly, and nothing that I've said you know, wants to you know, throw any doubt on that. But I think we need to also say this. If I choose not to respond to Christ, only I am responsible for that. If I choose for Christ, all glory goes to God. I, somehow, no matter how you get there, you need to say those two things. If I'm saved, all glory goes to God. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Visiting the Promised Land never loses its appeal. That's why I feel it's so important to offer Back to the Bible Canada Israel Experience April 27th to May 6, 2019. If you're able, taking the time to discover Jerusalem, the Garden Tomb, Sea of Galilee, King David's city, the list goes on and on, well, that will transform your understanding of the Bible and offer a spiritual impact like perhaps nothing else can on this earth. So consider joining me in Israel, and I'll do my best to bring every location to life and allow the Spirit of God to minister to your heart and mind. 
It all offers great fellowship and refreshment that sets the stage for new lifelong friendships. So consider joining us, and for more information, please call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.